At work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription oh you guys summer is busy for me i'm sorry i'm a little late with this episode but better late than never is what some people say right well this episode has some very special things it's about animals it's about one of my favorite stories of all time and i really i know I say that a lot, but I really mean it this time because I love the Lewis and Clark story, but I also really love the story of the prairie dog from the Lewis and Clark story, which you may be like, what are you talking about? Well, just buckle up. You'll hear it. We also have a really, really, really great and really touching story from my friend Heather Gottlieb. She's going to take you all the way to Russia, tell you about how some people tried to subvert the government with cartoons. What? I know, right? Um, Also, some great music from my friend Da 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 and the Dinos. And, uh, oh, yeah, did I tell you we wrote a book? Did you listen to our episode last month about the book that I wrote? Well, uh, it's it's been a lot of fun to promote it. It's still available if you don't have a copy or you've, like, read your copy so many times that it's worn out. You can buy another one. Uh, all sorts of ways to do that. Go to thepastandthecurious.com to find out more about that or earlyworkspress.com. I'm Mick Sullivan, and I'm glad you're here on The Past and the Curious. Dearest mother, it has been a fortnight since I have left your side in the den. Though it was against my will at first, I have resolved to enjoy my journey. The rest of the travelers are kind to me. I am fed well, and I receive much attention, and I am eager to see what the future holds. Do not worry for me. Yours truly, Petey. Obviously, prairie dogs cannot write letters. But if they could... Perhaps this is what one particular prairie dog, the most well-traveled of his species, might have sent home way back in 1804. When Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark West, along with a party of men known as the Corps of Discovery, there were a few things he'd hoped that they would achieve. Perhaps more than anything, he wondered if there was a way to travel all the way across the American continent and reach the Pacific Ocean by water. It sure would make things easier if you could sail a boat clear across the middle of America. Of course, we know it's not possible now, but most of the land was pretty unfamiliar at the time to the people back east, who were not native to the land. Jefferson also wanted to establish relationships with the many Native American tribes already living on the land, as they had been for centuries. Learning and mapping this land would go a long way towards his ultimate dream of Americans populating this continent, which, to say the very least, would be unfair to the people who were already living there. If you have ever been to Jefferson's house, known as Monticello, or you know a few things about him, you might know that he was fascinated with nature. The variety of plants and animals on the American continent was exciting to him. In fact, he once got into a long, 
public fight with a French nobleman about which continent had better animals, Europe or North America. The two stubborn and competitive men would mail each other measurements and descriptions of their own native animals, trying to one-up each other with beautiful and healthy specimens. The hope was to show that the other continent was doomed with puny, small animals. But measurements of squirrels and jackrabbits, along with deer antlers and wolf paws, can only do so much. Finally, Jefferson mailed his adversary a huge dead moose to see if Europe could top the massive specimen. For one reason or another, the argument didn't continue after that, but what do you say to a guy who mails you a dead moose anyway? So considering his obsession with natural life, one of the other jobs Jefferson gave to Lewis and Clark was to document and catalog the plants and animals that they found. But before leaving, Meriwether Lewis got a crash course in anatomy and biology so he could draw, describe, and in some cases preserve plants and animals to send back to Thomas Jefferson. As they traveled up the Missouri River into the middle of the continent, he and William Clark filled thousands of pages with words and drawings to send back to the president. Most of the words were misspelled, actually, but the drawings were pretty good. Also, packages were bundled with furs and bones and more. Obviously, there was no way to ship stuff to the president easily. There was no mail service, and we were centuries away from UPS or FedEx. So at some point, probably when the river got too narrow and shallow for their very big boat, they were planning to send a detachment party. Led by a man named Corporal Warfington, this group would leave the main party and take the big boat the men had been using back down river. Lewis and Clark and the other men would continue heading west on their mission. And once everything they wanted to send was loaded on, Warfington would pilot the boat back down river to St. Louis and then make arrangements to get all of that stuff that they had collected and created to Thomas Jefferson all the way in Washington, D.C. Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery, as the party was known, were near a mountain called Old Baldy when they witnessed a sight that gave them what they thought was a great idea. Thousands and thousands, and thousands of prairie dogs. The little critters weren't completely unfamiliar to the travelers. They had heard about the animals from the French, who called the little rodents dogs because of the peculiar barking sound that they seemed to make. Deep below the great fields of what would one day become Nebraska, there were hundreds of dens connecting tunnels in which the community of these barking rodents lived, and gazing upon a sea of bouncing and bobbing prairie dogs, it hit them. Thomas Jefferson would love to have one of these little guys as a pet. I mean, really, how hard could it be to catch one? There were literally thousands of these prairie dogs after all, so the men figured they could just run out there and nab one. A few of the men, who had plenty of experience as trappers, headed out into the field and set about to the task. One tried to grab a prairie dog with his hands. Haha, <laughs> nope. Another tried to snag one in a bag. Haha, <laughs> super nope. The prairie dogs were small, fast, and not having any of that nonsense. So dancing around and darting between legs and disappearing down the holes, they scattered over the vast field and the prairie dogs were quick as raindrops in a tornado. The men caught their breath and stood scratching their heads in a confused frustration. Maybe a shovel would work? Yeah, 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 maybe a shovel would work. They could try digging down to the underground den and then just grab one. It's as easy as pie. Now, I don't know if many of you have considered what it was like to bake a pie in 1804, but it wasn't easy. There was no canned fruit, no pre-made pie crusts, no modern adjustable oven, everything from scratch. 
1804, just take my word for it, pie was not easy, and neither was digging down to a prairie dog den. The men huffed and puffed as they plunged the iron head of the shovel into the dry prairie dirt and made their way down inches at a time. When their muscles ached, they'd trade places and the newer shoveler would start, picturing a den full of the critters just below. But the deeper they dug, the more they realized that these little guys were really far down. What seemed like hours passed as the sun beat down, and it was pointless. They would never dig that deep. The prairie dogs had foiled their plans a second time. How embarrassing. Someone had a last chance idea. As far as the explorers knew, prairie dogs couldn't breathe underwater. And this is true. So if someone were to, say, pour water into one of those holes, you know, it would flood the den and the creatures would come to the top through one of their many other holes in the ground. Perhaps someone could snag one of the escaping critters as it emerged into the daylight. They agreed it was worth a shot. Buckets were filled, water was poured, and the men waited by several of the holes that the prairie dogs would use as escape routes. After the water flowed, sure enough, one of the critters popped up from the ground and bingo, they got one. Now this little prairie dog found himself in a new home in a special cage that they had assembled. And for the next leg of the trip, he was a special guest. The men fed him and probably tried to tickle his chin while avoiding his powerful and constantly growing prairie dog teeth. By wintertime, the playful little guy found himself with the rest of the group at Fort Mandan. By now, it was super, super cold, and the river had frozen, which made boat travel pretty difficult. So the men decided to make camp and stay and wait for spring. They suffered through temperatures as low as 43 degrees below zero. They also met a woman named Sakagawea, who they would come to trust greatly, and they even helped to deliver her baby. When spring came, the men, now joined by Sakagawea and her baby, kept heading west. This was when they said goodbye to the prairie dog. You see, he was in the boat that returned east with Corporal Warfington and his detachment party. There were a lot of things that survived, journals, letters, and specimens, but oddly, no one really knows what became of the actual boat. It was lost to time being sold to someone for use or scrap without any ceremony. Today, it would be one of the most valuable artifacts in American history. Now we may have lost the boat, but we didn't lose the prairie dog. At least not yet. After another long trip from St. Louis to the east coast of America, Corporal Warfington fulfilled his mission. He delivered the prairie dog to Thomas Jefferson. Living with the president was essentially living in the lap of luxury for the little creature. Food, tickles, and constant access to foreign and domestic dignitaries. It was everything a rodent could ever hope for. One of Jefferson's friends, however, was creating the first true museum in America, and Jefferson realized that his little prairie pal would be a perfect addition to Peel's Philadelphia Museum. And so, Charles Wilson Peel became the new owner of our story's protagonist. But if you think living in the president's mansion was a high point and nothing could top such an important space, would you be right? You'd be worse than right. You'd be wrong, because Peel's museum was on the second floor of Independence Hall, where among other things, the Declaration of Independence was signed and where hordes of tourists travel every day of the year today. Despite living the remainder of his years in such a historically important place, we should all realize that prairie dogs don't live forever. 
In fact, on average, they live about three to five years. There's no telling how old the critter was when he was finally caught by Lewis and Clark, but he did pass away while living at the museum. Charles Wilson Peel used a method of preserving his animal body for display, called taxidermy, so that the creature might live on in a new way. People were curious to see animals from places they had never been, and thousands of citizens cast their eyes upon this very prairie dog, even many years after he had chomped his last lunch. His taxidermied body would remain on display for decades. In 1827, Peel, the museum founder himself, also chomped his last lunch, though he was given a more traditional burial instead of being put out on display. His family continued the museum for years, but eventually decided to sell the old man's collection. They sold the prairie dog to none other than P.T. Barnum, the subject of our very first full episode. Go check it out if you haven't yet. Now this was before P.T. Barnum would tour the country with a circus, and while he was building a museum which he would fill with both educational objects and outright lies that he called humbugs. So fake mermaids and fake giants were put on display to fool and entertain the public right alongside real whales, real lions, and yes, real prairie dogs. Sadly, our rodent friend and nearly everything else Barnum had collected were all destroyed in a famous fire that happened at Barnum's museum in 1865. As we said, if you'd like to learn more about Barnum, you can check out our episode titled Barnum and Banvard. If you'd like to learn more about Peel's museum, well, you're just going to have to wait, bucko, because we're going to tell you about that next month. Okay, it's not 30 seconds long, but this was by request. I asked my friends from Cool Facts About Animals, it's a great podcast, to give us a You Have 30 Seconds. So you guys, go ahead and take it away with You Have However Many Seconds It Takes to Tell This Story. This is the Cool Facts About Animals crew here to tell you about an infamous cow. In 1871, a great fire ripped through the city of Chicago. Fire was so big, it became famous as the Great Chicago fi- Fire of 1871. It destroyed over three square miles of the city, killed hundreds of people, and left over 100,000 people homeless. It was so big, it actually crossed the Chicago River. For sure, the fire was devastating, and everyone was looking for someone to blame. That blame fell on... A cow. The story went, as reported in the Chicago Tribune by reporter Michael Ahern, that Mrs. Catherine O'Leary's cow kicked over a lantern while it was being milked. The lantern lit fire to the barn, and the fire began. The story spread as quickly as the fire, and even was memorialized in a song. Late last night, when we were all in bed, Mrs. O'Leary hung a lantern in the shed, and when the cow kicked it over, she winked her eye and said, It's gonna be a hot time in the old town tonight. Fire! 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 Well, we all know it's not nice to make up things about people or cows. And it turns out that this story of the poor cow was a load of baloney. The reporter admitted in 1893 that the story was made up. Fake news! But it wasn't until 1997 that the Chicago City Council officially exonerated Mrs. O'Leary and her cow from any guilt in starting the fire. And that's no bull. Hot time the old town, downtown tonight. Hot time the old town tonight. Oh man, I love that song. Thanks for reminding me, guys. And thanks for helping us out with a cool story from Cool Facts About Animals. Um, If you have 
30 seconds and a great story to tell, we want to hear it. Go to thepastandthecurious.com for instructions. It's really easy. You can do it on your phone. Make sure you get your parents' help. Um, we have one lined up for next month, August 2019. But if you've got one, I'm sorry, that's June, July. What month is this? July. What's my name? What's going on? You guys, help me out. Send me some 30 seconds. I'm losing my mind over here. Hot time in the old town, downtown tonight. Hot time in the old town tonight. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Yes, it is quiz time. Question number one. Soldiers during World War I were often confined to dark, wet trenches, which were ditches dug in the earth to provide safety from enemy weapons. But do you know which creature often kept them company and brought a bit of light to the darkness? Glowworms demonstrate a form of bioluminescence, which is a natural form of light that certain organisms can create, not unlike a firefly or lightning bug. During the war, these little creatures were kept in jars, and then the light allowed soldiers to read and write at night in the otherwise dark trenches. Question number two. In 1862, Abraham Lincoln received a letter from the King of Siam with a very strange offer. The king had an animal that he thought might improve the Union's chances of winning the American Civil War. Though Lincoln said no, can you guess what kind of animal was offered? Lincoln was polite in his response and thanked the King of Siam for his thoughtfulness, but he ultimately decided that elephants weren't going to be much help to the Union. One of his main reasons was that steam power, mainly in the form of boats and trains, made the elephants unnecessary. Plus, think of the mess that they would have made at camp. Question number three, your third and final question. While that military experiment did not work out, another non-native animal was brought to America just before the Civil War. In fact, an entire regiment was organized of soldiers riding these creatures to explore and move supplies across the southwestern part of the North American continent. Any idea what creatures these might have been? In the 1850s, about 60 camels were brought into America to create the U.S. Camel Corps. The camels were used in dry areas of the country for a few years, but they famously did not get along well with the horses the army also employed. As America's attention shifted to the Civil War, the camels were decommissioned or returned to civilian service. Some of them were purchased by private owners, while many of them were actually just turned loose. For decades after, people reported seeing camels roaming the lands of the American West. If you were to find yourself in the farthest eastern corner of Siberia, almost all the way to Vladivostok, which happens to be where Russia meets China and Japan, you will find a city called Khabarovsk. It's an average-sized city with normal city things, museums, fountains, statues. If you travel just a little ways into Khabarovsk, you'll find a small park. And if you spend enough time exploring there, you might find a different kind of statue, 
worn down from the hands of all the people who have rubbed it for luck. Picture this, a gloriously tall, four-legged beast captured in a moment of pure animal energy. The beast's smooth bronze muzzle ends in big square teeth, and its head is topped with sunglasses? It's a donkey in sunglasses, wearing a wig and holding a microphone? Seems like it can't get any weirder than this until you see the cat in tall boots and a monocle next to him playing a guitar and the dog in the Hawaiian shirt jamming on the bass. Oh, and you can't forget the rooster in the back racking out on the drums. Why would these animals be cast in bronze to decorate this park in Khabarovsk forever? This is a city that loved a cartoon so much that they put statues up in honor of it. And this is not unique to Khabarovsk. You can find statues of these cartoon characters in Krasnoyarsk, Sochi, St. Petersburg, and Lipyets, Russia. It's good luck to rub these animal statues and make a wish. To someone visiting for the first time, these statues might seem silly, but they don't understand the particular magic of the Bremen town musicians, or in Russian, Bremensky Musikanti. To make a long story very short, about a hundred years ago, a country called the Soviet Union formed where Russia and many Eastern European countries are today. They wanted to try a different kind of government, and they thought the best way to make this new kind of government work was to isolate themselves from the rest of the world. They saw other countries with other philosophies as a distraction from their mission to make their own philosophy, which was called communism, work. Lots of people disagreed with communism, and it made life hard for people. So even though it was very difficult to leave the Soviet Union, people wanted to and found creative ways to do it. If you have a new country, you want to figure out a few things, right? And those things might include culture, things like art, books, and music. In the Soviet Union, the government decided that art, books, and music needed to be as realistic as possible. No art like Picasso's, which played with colors and shapes and how you saw things. Instead, a flower needed to look just like that, a flower. A person's eyes, ears, and nose needed to be in the place they belonged. No funny business. Some artists got right to work doing exactly what the government wanted. But some people wanted to play with how they made art, and despite the government's best efforts to keep it away, they knew that everywhere else in the world, people were doing exactly that. One way that people around the world were making art was through something called animation, pictures people drew that moved, otherwise known as cartoons. In America, especially, animation was really catching on, especially fun cartoons of animals like Bugs Bunny and an incredibly famous cartoon mouse. I bet you can guess his first name. Yes, it's Mickey. In the Soviet Union, Mickey Mouse was forbidden, since it was a distraction from this new government and way of life. But that didn't mean that people didn't think fun cartoon animals would catch on. Walt Disney himself, creator of Mickey Mouse, was more than happy to help, secretly sending a few cartoons over for Russian animators to study. With no other options, they were going to be their own Disney. Half a century after the Soviet Union became a country, people were hungry for American and European fashion, music, and movies. So in 1969, a few people got together late at night when they wouldn't be caught and decided they were going to make a real Disney-style movie. Something with the things that made Disney movies so popular, animals and catchy music. They thought for a long time about fairy tales, especially things featuring animals. Eventually, they remembered an old Brothers Grimm fairy tale. 
The Bremen Town Musicians is the story of a rooster, a cat, a dog, and a donkey who are all about to retire from farm life because their owners have decided they are useless. They decide to become musicians and make a new life together. They're going to the town of, guess where, Bremen, which is in Germany, to do this. But on the way, they need sleep, so they go into a house. The only problem is that the house is full of robbers. The animals work together to scare the robbers away, which they do, and then they decide that the house is all theirs to live in forever. The end. Only one problem with this story. It's kind of boring, isn't it? I mean, I just told you the whole thing in a couple of sentences. No offense if this is your favorite fairy tale, but also there are a lot of fairy tales out there, and you chose this one? This movie had animals and music, sure, both important elements in recreating what made American cinema so magical. But it needed more. It needed pizzazz. It needed love. And most of all, it needed rock and roll. One of the writers had been leafing through a magazine when he stumbled across a picture of a young man with his hair cut in the style of a popular English rock band, a style that was controversial even in Europe and America. The quartet known as the Beatles were looked down upon as wild, shaggy-haired youths who didn't take music seriously. It was exactly what the animators were looking for. They drew up a character who would look like he could be in the most popular band in the world and who would sing like the American legend who scandalized millions, Elvis Presley. This character never got a name. He was only known as the Troubadour. The animals became his backing band. Cat, dog, rooster, donkey, there was one animal for every member of the Beatles. There were five characters now, but there was something missing. Every good animated movie needs a princess. So they drew up a girl in a fashionable red mini dress, who it was rumored was based on the daughter of the Soviet Union's leader, who, like the princess in the cartoon, didn't want to marry the kind of man her father wanted her to. This comparison could really get you in trouble, though, because the government was strict, watchful, and everywhere. When the Bremen Town musicians came out, people flocked to the theater. Word had gotten out that there was this movie that had everything that was wrong with America and Europe in it, which many people thought was awesome. It quickly became one of the most popular movies in the history of the Soviet Union, no matter how angry it made the government, and the soundtrack sold millions of copies. They made a sequel, On the Trail of the Bremontown Musicians, and that one had even more rock and roll music and slapstick Bugs Bunny-inspired explosions and mischief. The creators of the movie, though, did not live happily ever after for a while. They were told that they were a bad influence on the people of the Soviet Union. They were forbidden to work with their fellow animators, and some of them even were rumored to get a pretty scary talking to from high-up officials. But the movie lived on, and a couple of decades later, the Soviet Union collapsed. Many countries that had been their own countries before the Soviet Union took over formed their own governments. One of them was Latvia, where, in the city of Riga, a statue of the Bremontown musicians was erected one year after the Soviet Union ended. It's not a cartoon statue. It's fairly serious and depicts the rooster, cat, dog, and donkey in that order, standing on each other's shoulders and looking out a window. According to locals, the animals are looking at a world that is new to them that they hadn't been allowed to discover before. They are checking to see if everything is all right behind the curtain and if it's safe to venture out. And that might be how the people of Latvia felt, looking on a new world where they didn't have to be separated from everything else that was going on. It's good luck to rub this statue too. My own family managed to get out of the Soviet Union in the 1980s. 
It wasn't easy, and they had to spend months without a home in different countries in Europe waiting for the right permission and paperwork to get to America, where they could build a new home. They left almost everything behind, taking only what could be fit into suitcases that could fly in airplanes across the Atlantic Ocean. But one thing they kept, hoping to pass along to the next generation, was a beloved record featuring music that told the most universal of tales. A story of love, freedom, and interspecies friendship between animals and humans. Its famous lyrics, Nietzsche volna svetia luce netu, chem hadit strosiam pampialum svetu, reminded them that there was nothing better in the world than to travel with your animal friends. It was the soundtrack to Bremensky Musicanti. Thanks, Heather. You know, one of the coolest things about having a podcast is that I get to meet people from all over the world. And recently, I became acquainted with a fellow from Philadelphia. You might call him a Philadelphia fellow. His name is Micah, though. And he is a part of a musical group called Da 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 and the Dinos, which is a kid's band. But they do some really, really, really incredible, incredibly rocking stuff, including this old song, which I adore. Thanks for listening to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan. But this is Da 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 and the Dinos.
so good. Thanks for listening, everybody. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and the Curious, and we will talk to you next month.